Hello, my name is Fiona Sawyer and I'm here with Charlotte Dyer. I'm the professional support lawyer for our planning team at Herbert Smith Freehills in London and Charlotte is an of counsel within our team with many years experience of town and country planning. Hi Charlotte. Hi Fiona. So Charlotte, we're here having this conversation because you would like to raise awareness of diversity and inclusion issues in planning. Obviously, it's something which is being talked about a lot at the moment. Yes, I'm really proud actually to work for a firm whose vision is to be the leading global law firm for diversity and inclusion, and which has won countless awards in this field. In the words of our CEO, Justin D'Agostino, fostering an inclusive culture where our people can be themselves contribute their perspectives and perform roles which are meaningful and aligned to our shared values is a core business priority. Diversity and inclusion should not just be achieved within the workplace, however, but we also need to create environments in which a diverse range of people can live, work and play together whilst feeling safe, welcome and valued. This is surely something that we should all strive to achieve. Yet why, in an increasingly diverse country, is the need for diversity and inclusion still such a hot topic that generates passionate debate? Perhaps part of the answer is that people struggle to understand what role they can play in fostering greater diversity and inclusion. I suppose the starting point is understanding what we mean by diversity and inclusion. Yes, the words are often used interchangeably, but they each have a specific meaning. According to the dictionary, diversity means the fact of many different types of things or people being included in something or a range of different things or people. Whereas inclusion means the idea that everyone should be able to use the same facilities, take part in the same activities and enjoy the same experiences, including people who have a disability or other disadvantage. So when I think about the recent context of this in planning, I think of something like the Edward Colston statue and the changes that happened as a result to national planning policy. For example, the retain and explain policy in relation to statues. But you're saying that it's much more than that. Yes, I think so. A report by the Design Council entitled Inclusion by Design found that the built environment can contribute to a more equal, inclusive and cohesive society if the places where we live, the facilities we use and our neighbourhoods and meeting places are designed to be accessible and inclusive. However, the report also explained that the impact of bad design is more likely to be felt by the disabled, elderly, those from minority cultures and faiths, carers with young children and women. This is true particularly of public open spaces. Public Health England's report, Improving Access to Green Space, a new report for 2020, explains that green environments are associated with reduced levels of depression, anxiety and fatigue, and can enhance quality of life for both children and adults, as well as binding communities together. Yet the report identifies that not only is there unequal access to such green spaces, but that poorly designed green spaces tend to increase antisocial behaviour and that the health benefits of these areas depend on people's feelings of safety and the behaviour of other users. The importance of ensuring that these spaces are available and welcoming to all is made even clearer when considering the statistics cited in a recent report by Groundwork UK, Out of Bounds, Equity and Access to Urban Nature. For example, that in England, black people are nearly four times as likely as white people to have no access to outdoor space at home. 
And the pandemic will, of course, exacerbated this inequality. Definitely. On the subject of the pandemic, I read an amusing article written by Caitlin Moran in the Sunday Times a while ago, entitled How to Get People Back to the High Street. She highlighted the difficulties that certain groups of people face when accessing high streets and London attractions, in particular due to a lack of toilets, benches and step-free access. While such issues may affect a broad spectrum of people to some extent, they may act as a barrier to the use and enjoyment of these places for certain people, for example, the elderly or disabled. Better planning would have meant that a much more diverse group of people could have enjoyed these places. So what you're saying is that one size fits all just doesn't work when it comes to designing new buildings and places. Exactly. People have a range of different wants and requirements that may evolve over time. Buildings and places should offer facilities that reflect the diversity of the people who will use them in order to foster greater inclusion. For example, prayer rooms, transgender toilets, facilities for women to store breast milk, for example, and and be flexible enough to serve multiple functions. And on that note, we can see the difference that the new requirements for things like changing places toilets have made in public buildings for people with additional support needs. Absolutely. Supporting infrastructure also needs to be planned, taking into account diversity and inclusion. As a mum who's tried to navigate the tube on her own with a push chair and multiple bags, I feel strongly that much more needs to be done to be able to make places more accessible to all. Yes, I know exactly what you mean. And if we struggled with a pushchair, how is someone in a wheelchair on their own supposed to manage? The Inclusive by Design report concluded that inclusive design means designing transport that is dignified, accessible, affordable, safe and easy to use and creates a way for everyone to get around. So I mentioned earlier the Edward Colston statue as an example of how diversity and inclusion has now become something that we're openly discussing and we're thinking about a lot more. Yes, artwork is one way, amongst many others, to change how welcome people may feel within an area. Statues of figureheads from ethnic minorities, members of the LGBT plus community or women, for example, may encourage people from within these groups to visit and use an area more frequently. On the other hand, statues that certain groups of people find offensive may prevent such people from going to the places where those statues are located. The removal of the statue of the 17th century slave trader Edward Colston by protesters in Bristol last year shows how passionate people can become about this topic. In an interview with The Guardian, Marvin Rees, who's the mayor of Bristol, gave his view on this act. He said, I cannot condone criminal damage. I'm a political leader. We need order in the city, but I can't pretend the statue is anything but an affront to me, not just as a Jamaican heritage man, but as a human being. And yet changes that have happened earlier this year to national planning policy and permitted development rights now mean that planning permission is needed to demolish or even just to move statues and memorials and monuments. And it was Robert Jenrick, the former Secretary of State for Housing, Communities and Local Government, as it was then, who said that we cannot and should not now try to edit or censor our past. Yes, in my view, this seems to misunderstand the point. It's not about changing the past. Rather, it's about finding other ways for communities to learn the valuable lessons that history has to teach us in museums, for example, whilst ensuring that the places in which we live don't hold us back by fostering resentment, insecurity and unrest within communities. 
whilst that £143,000 statue of the 18th century English author Mary Wollstonecraft that was unveiled last year in Newington Green in London probably missed the mark. I mean, did they really think that a tiny naked woman emerging from a big metallic fountain was the best way to honour an advocate of women's rights? Nevertheless, it generated a lot of helpful debate about what statues people actually want to see in the open spaces that they use. I completely agree. So what can we do as planning professionals? It is only with a deep understanding of the needs and expectations of a particular culture, ethnic background or social group, for example, that the planning profession will be able to take the steps that are needed to make changes. However, a report published last month by the Heriot Watt University, amongst others, found that planners and housing professionals lack the confidence, skills and resources required to actively address racial inequality in housing. One way to address this would be to ensure that those people who experience inequality, for any reason, not just limited to racial inequality, are given a seat at the table by recruiting a more diverse workforce within the planning industry. Each member of a team brings their own perspective to an issue. Therefore, when a team includes people from a wide range of ages, races, sexualities, genders and so on, the issue can be analysed from many different perspectives, thus increasing the likelihood of innovation and empathetic decision making that takes into account both the majority and the minority. From planning officers to architects and from planning lawyers to town planners, a job in the planning industry provides a powerful tool through which people can help to shape their communities. This is a message that needs to filter down through universities and schools, of course accompanied by appropriate financial support for those who are financially disadvantaged within the education system. And what about the way that we do things? Well, let's take consultation as an example. Consultation as a concept should be inherently inclusive, but the Harriet Watt University report found that public consultations can reinforce existing unequal power relationships by favouring those with the time, knowledge and confidence to participate. Not enough is currently being done to engage BAME, low income and other less frequently heard groups. So undertaking more effective, not just more, consultation at the planning policy and application stage is key. Consultation will only truly be effective when it allows the opportunity for a diverse range of consultees to participate. Some ways to do this include reaching those people without the time to participate, for example, by through the use of mobile consultation vans that visit local communities, events held at different times of day and at places that people will frequently visit, such as shopping centres, online events and attendance at meetings of local community groups who can spread the word to others. Another example, explaining the planning process and consultation to those who do not understand, for example, through easy to use guides, drop-in workshops and free phone numbers where members of the planning team can answer questions. Identifying and engaging with hard to reach consultees for example, by seeking help from organisations who represent hard to reach people and taking their feedback on board in designing the consultation strategy. Making the consultation material accessible to more people, for example, by providing consultation material in foreign languages, large print or braille. And another way is responding to the consultation feedback so that people can see how their feedback was considered, making it more likely that they will engage in consultation events in the future. Those are all really good points. Um, but what about the planning system itself? 
There's already extensive legislation aimed at tackling inequality and improving diversity. In particular, the Equality Act 2010 requires public authorities to have regard to the need to achieve the objectives of eliminating discrimination, harassment and victimisation, of advancing equality of opportunity and of fostering good relations between persons who share a relevant protected characteristic and persons who don't. However, despite this duty having been in force for a decade, it's clear that much more needs to be done to improve diversity and inclusion within the planning industry. One of the challenges in this area is that it's very difficult to legislate for every possible diverse scenario. Disappointingly, the National Planning Policy Framework doesn't directly address the issues of diversity and inclusivity. The Planning for Equality and Diversity in London SBG does provide some guidance on planning for equality and diversity in the capital. And it's a great start, but it's not been updated since 2007 and it only applies to London. Each local council should have its own guidance on diversity and inclusion and time should be spent analysing and updating that guidance to ensure that it is fit for purpose with input sought from a wide range of people. Helpfully, the Local Government Association recently published a councillor's workbook on equality, diversity and inclusion, which should be read alongside each council's own guidance. That guidance recognises that councillors are in an ideal position to play a significant role in leading the way to ensuring that everyone in society has opportunities available to them, is treated fairly and is made to feel like they belong. All excellent points. So what can we do about it? We can ask the government to improve legislation and policy, but what can others involved in planning do? With the UK becoming increasingly diverse in its demographic makeup, the importance of fostering greater diversity and inclusivity within the places that we live, work and play is growing. We all have a role in this and that role is constantly evolving. I'd suggest that you start with open and honest conversations with a diverse range of people you live, work or socialise with to seek inclusive feedback to agree what steps you can take to make a difference. Yes, and there's also been the recent research by the Local Government Association which supports that. So that focused on how councils can work with their local voluntary and community sector to improve civic participation of underrepresented groups. That found that there wasn't a single way to do it, no single path or process to successfully engaging underrepresented groups. So presumably this is also relevant for developers who want to ensure that their schemes meet the needs of their local community. Indeed, there's no one right way to engage and it takes a lot of effort and thought to do it effectively. The government must take steps to strengthen requirements for diversity and inclusion in development planning and decision taking, but such steps will inevitably not happen overnight. So in the meantime, developers should proactively seek to ensure that their schemes promote diversity and inclusion, for example, by including new public art in their schemes ensuring that their teams are diverse and inclusive and make great efforts to understand the community's needs, such as in terms of housing, accessibility and access to open space and facilities. Thank you very much, Charlotte. If you'd like more information on anything mentioned in today's podcast, please just contact a member of the Herbert Smith Freehills planning team using the contact details on the podcast homepage. Thanks again, Charlotte. Thanks, Fiona, and thanks for listening.